Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Alex Lawson, Executive Director of Social Security Works, who talks about his group's campaign to protect Social Security and Medicare from the Republican Party plan to raise the retirement age and impose benefit cuts. Dan Barrett of the ACLU of Connecticut, who examines the landmark federal court ruling, which affirmed that discrimination against transgender students violates Title IX, the law that prohibits sex discrimination in educational programs. And Zenit Yaya of the group March for Our Lives, who reflects on the grim 10th anniversary of the Sandy Hook School Massacre and the ongoing campaign to regulate the sale of firearms and end gun violence. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. During the brutal war in eastern Ukraine, the Kiev government claimed credit for an attack on a hotel where top members of the pro-Russian mercenary army, the Wagner Group, were meeting. Ukraine reported that a number of Wagner fighters were killed in the assault in the Russian-occupied Luhansk region. The Wagner Group, founded by close Putin ally Yevgeny Prigozhin, first emerged in Crimea in 2014 as a network of mercenaries, the so-called Little Green Men, during the invasion and annexation campaign. Since 2015, the private army has deployed unidentified special forces to protect Russian allies in Syria, Libya, the Central African Republic, and Mali. Al Jazeera reports that the Wagner Group has been accused of protecting Prigozhin's mining interests in Africa. Private soldiers with the Wagner Group are trained at a key military base in southern Russia. German intelligence suspects that Wagner mercenaries were involved in human rights abuses early in the Ukraine war, including the killing of civilians at Bucha during the withdrawal of Russian troops around Kiev. As America rushed to build nuclear weapons at the dawn of the Cold War, safety was sacrificed for speed. The uranium mills that processed the fuel for the weapons also dumped radioactive and toxic waste into rivers across the American West. Thousands of sheep died and cancer wards across the region were filled with sick uranium workers. According to ProPublica, 84% of these uranium mill sites have polluted groundwater, and nearly 75% still have either no protective liner or only a partial liner between mill waste and the ground, leaving groundwater susceptible to leaching pollution. Today in the drought-stricken West, where most of the sites are located, climate change is drying up surface water, making underground reserves increasingly important. Residents near those sites and others have witnessed so many cases of cancer and thyroid disease that they believe the mills and waste piles are to blame, even though few, if any, epidemiological studies to prove such a link have been conducted. Tom Hanrahan, who grew up near uranium mills in Colorado and New Mexico, watched three of his brothers contract cancer and believes his siblings were casualties of the Cold War. 
Four years ago, the campfire, the deadliest wildfire in California history, tore through the foothills around Chico, California, killing 85 people, burning 150 acres of forest, and destroying nearly 19,000 buildings. In its wake, housing prices in the city of 100,000 people have risen by double digits in an area averse to building affordable housing. The city of Chico is now debating the future of a proposed new housing development plan called Valley's Edge in an area near where the campfire burned. Developer Bill Brauhard says the development on the edge of the forest would create 3,000 units of single and multi-family housing along with scenic trails. He claims the housing community would act as a firebreak protecting the city of Chico. According to the online magazine Grist, the increasing number of deadly wildfires in the American West have become a new source of tension in the wildland-urban interface, the gap between residential areas and dense, highly combustible forests. The Sierra Club is leading opposition to the Valley's Edge development, advocating that dense, affordable housing be built instead in downtown Chico. Although the city is currently zoned for single-family housing and resistant to building affordable housing, this week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon for Between the Lines. I'm Anna Manzo. During the 2022 midterm election campaign, Republican Party leaders made clear that if they won control of the House of Representatives, they intended to use upcoming negotiations on the federal debt ceiling to force cuts to Social Security and Medicare. Now that the GOP is set to take control of the House on January 3rd with a very narrow majority, Democrats are gearing up for a nasty fight where breach of the debt ceiling could have catastrophic effects on the economy, and any concessions made on Social Security and Medicare would erode the nation's popular social safety net programs. Congressional Republicans have embraced plans to reduce federal spending on Social Security and Medicare, including cutting benefits for some retirees, raising the retirement age for both programs, and requiring many older Americans to pay higher premiums for their health coverage. In response to the Republican threat, President Biden has repeatedly said he won't agree to any cuts to Social Security, which provides retirement and disability payments to some 66 million Americans, or Medicare, which provides health insurance to about 64 million Americans. Your reporter spoke with Alex Lawson, Executive Director of Social Security Works. Here he discusses his group's stand on stopping the Republican Party from holding the federal debt limit hostage to force cuts to Social Security and Medicare, and his call to Democrats to do everything possible to protect these essential programs millions rely on, and aggressively push back against all attempts to be blackmailed into surrender or compromise. They want to steal our money and give it to their criminal friends on Wall Street. And the way they do that is by cutting our Social Security benefits. We all know that no one gives us our Social Security. We earn it. 
It's our money. We see it coming out of our paychecks. That's our money. So if they cut it either now or in the future, they're literally reaching their hands in our pockets and stealing our money. And that's their goal. So how they do it, by hook or by crook, uh, they take any opportunity. The debt ceiling is sort of their most powerful play. Um, So I want to go into it but not get way lost in in the debt ceiling itself because it's important to just get everyone to understand that this is a Social Security fight. Uh, And so we have to defeat them totally and completely because we can't let even a single penny of benefit cuts happen. But what the debt ceiling is, is it's this weird trick in the law. It makes no sense. We're like the only country that has it. uh, And it just allows the majority party in one, even if they just hold the house, what they can do is hold up the ability not to spend money. The money's already been spent, but it's basically to pay the bill of the money that we already spent. We have the money to do it, but they can actually just through process hold it up. And we saw them do this before in the Obama age of austerity, when you had the Tea Party ride in in 2010. And the first thing they did was they started getting their knives out for Social Security and they held the debt ceiling hostage. So we know exactly what their playbook is. And the reason that it's so powerful is because even the, the brinksmanship of holding the debt ceiling hostage, so not actually uh, uh, going over the debt ceiling, but just the brinksmanship of holding it hostage had S&P ratings downgrade U.S. sovereign debt at the time. And they made it really clear in their note. It was not because of the United States' ability to pay. We're the richest country in the world. We can clearly pay. It was just that the political system allowed us to default on our obligations. And that's what the Republicans hold hostage. They say, we're going to default on our obligations unless you cut Social Security benefits. And what happens then is then we're fighting on their turf, right? And then the compromise is like, oh, well, we'll give them a little bit of a cut. Maybe it's not to Social Security. Maybe it's to so-called discretionary programs or it's the sequester, if you remember that blast from the past. Just all this evil policy becomes compromise. And so going into this showdown, what we're saying at Social Security Works is no compromise. A clean debt ceiling raise. They're not doing anyone any favors by paying our bills. That's our obligation. Alex, what's the response to the Republicans about the need for austerity, the need for cuts in Social Security and Medicare? How do you respond to their call that the federal government shouldn't be spending this much money and we have to cut back? They're a bunch of craven liars. I mean, they love spending money. They spend so much money when they are in power. They have nothing against spending money as long as it's spending money, a fire hose of money into their criminal friends on Wall Street's pockets, right? That's what the so-called tax cut is. That's a spend. That's just redistributing our wealth upward. So it's a fake thing. They pretend it's about restraining spending. or It's all BS. That's just all theater that they uh, are doing. What they're actually doing is competing for their major donors. They're competing for the billionaires who's called the tunes that they dance to. And so what we have to do, what Social Security works is, is working with grassroots people, everyone that we can. We need to do a couple things. 
get all the Democrats in Congress to pledge that they're not going to accept a single penny of cuts as some sort of compromise. We're going to run a pledge campaign. We're already starting it. We're going to go to every single member of Congress, Democrats and Republicans, because we have to get Democrats to promise that they're not going to allow a single penny of cuts. And we have to get Republicans on the record because that's their main game is still as they're doing this, as they're out every day trying to destroy Social Security, they look square into the camera on Fox News and they're like, we're not doing that. They just lie about it. Their constituents overwhelmingly reject any cuts to Social Security. It, this is not a partisan issue. It does not matter if you're in a, you know, deep red MAGA country. They hate people coming after their Social Security as much as uh, people who drive electric cars and in Berkeley do. It's a universally loved program. That was Alex Lawson, executive director of the group Social Security Works. Learn more about the group's campaign to protect Social Security and Medicare by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The state of Connecticut has some of the strongest laws and regulations for the protection of transgender rights in the U.S., Among other things, it protects the rights of transgender youth and, in practice, transgender girls to participate on girls' sports teams. After two cisgender girls challenged the policy, the ACLU and the ACLU Foundation of Connecticut defended the transgender youth participation policy of the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference in the case Sol et al. versus Connecticut Association of Schools et al the nation's first federal court case challenging such a policy. On December 16th, the Second Circuit Federal Court of Appeals upheld the policy, ruling that the claims that cisgender girls were denied opportunities or championships to be moot and unfounded, ultimately ruling they lack standing to challenge the athletic conference policy. The court also affirmed that discrimination against transgender students violates Title IX the federal law that prohibits sex discrimination in educational programs. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Dan Barrett, legal director of the ACLU of Connecticut, who explains the ruling and its importance in civil rights law. The whole lawsuit was deeply unusual and also incredibly vitriolic. So what you had in this lawsuit was a group of high school runners who sued some of the schools that they ran against because they had to run against my clients. I mean, you had a federal lawsuit over uh, a couple of races in high school, one bunch of runners trying to get a court order forcing my clients out of the race. It's incredibly petty and also unbelievably hurtful. You know, the whole idea here was that had the plaintiffs succeeded, Connecticut High School Athletics would have been radically transformed. We've had equal access for the better part of a decade now, and these plaintiffs decided that a better rule would be to put schools in charge and make them sort of a gender police force determining what a person's quote-unquote real gender is. It was uh, an unbelievably vitriolic theory. Let me play devil's advocate here for a minute, and maybe you can provide more information. But if a transgender girl wants to run in the female division and is biologically a male, it seems like that would come with certain physical advantages. So, you know, there could be concern that it wasn't an equal playing field. So can you address that? 
Sure. And starting with the term biological male, there's there's no such thing. I think the the aims of the plaintiff's lawsuit was to get courts to buy into this theory that there is one way to determine gender and that gender is immutable. Neither of those things is true. So you can look at gender from a sociological perspective. You can look at it from a hormonal perspective, from the endocrine system, from the physical anatomy of a person. There's many ways of doing it. And there's no one way to say this person is male or female. And that's because gender identity is the person's own sense of who they are. One of the things that we want to reinforce here in Connecticut is that we don't want the government in charge of telling people who they are. You know, you think of any other context. We don't let the government tell people that they're not really Jewish or that they're not really, you know, of Hispanic descent. That's not what the government does. Shouldn't do that for gender either. The second is that it's a generalization to say that anyone who's transgender is automatically some kind of superior athlete. Just like cisgender people, transgender people come in all shapes and sizes. Those shapes and sizes are not automatically great at athletics or at a particular athletic competition. Uh, you know, if you think back to high school athletics, the idea is you show up, you compete, you do your best, and you you show up as you are. You know, we're sort of in this age of of so much gender fluidity that I think it's you know it's kind of a brave new world for a lot of people, especially people who are are not young people, and have grown up and lived in a society that has been gender divided with all the baggage that that entails. But it's you know it is a different way of looking at it. So this was a decision of the appeals court. What impact does this ruling have going forward? Maybe on other cases or other situations. Well, for one thing, it you know the, the most important thing here in Connecticut is that it puts an end to the challenge, and so our you know CIAC's policy is intact, and that means that the winter and spring um, seasons and every season thereafter are going to proceed as they have been on equal footing, welcoming all athletes, which is fantastic. But more broadly, the decision makes clear a couple of things. One is that it is not the grounds for a federal lawsuit for a plaintiff to march in and announce that they have somehow been wronged because they had to compete against a transgender athlete. That's not going to do the trick, and that, that's not correct. So that's going to be very important going forward. The second is that in a different part of the case, having to do with the school district defendants, the Second Circuit outlined the law across the land and made clear that a school district makes a pretty good bet when it concludes that federal anti-discrimination statutes include gender identity. That is to say, the school district tends to get the right answer when it protects against discrimination on the basis of gender identity. That also is going to be important throughout the circuit and, and nationwide. That was Dan Barrett, the ACLU of Connecticut's legal director. Learn more about this case and the struggle for transgender rights by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Ten years ago, on December 14th, the people of Newtown, Connecticut, suffered unimaginable violence and trauma when a deranged 20-year-old gunman used an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle 
to kill his mother, then went on to slaughter 20 first graders and six educators at the town's Sandy Hook Elementary School. In the years since, the nation has been plagued by dozens of other mass shootings at schools, shopping malls, grocery stores, movie theaters, and houses of worship. On February 14, 2018, students at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, were attacked by an expelled student who used an AR-15 rifle to murder 17 people and wounding 17 others in what became at the time the deadliest shooting at a U.S. high school. Surviving students at Stoneman Douglas High School went on to organize a massive protest in support of gun control legislation on March 24th that same year in Washington, D.C., with over 800 sibling events across the country. The group later worked to successfully mobilize young people to vote in national and local elections. Your reporter spoke with Zenit Yaya, director of policy with March for Our Lives, who reflects on the significance of the 10th anniversary of the Sandy Hook school shooting and her group's ongoing campaign to regulate the sale of firearms and end gun violence. You know, it's been 10 years of thoughts and prayers, right, and 10 years of tired excuses from different elected officials, legislators, who really seem to care more about political gain than the lives of children and young people. And something I want to point out is every day without any action is more lives lost, right? Um, hundred people die every day of gun violence, and we really can't wait any longer. And so one of the things that our organization has been really, really pushing for um, this like fall and winter until Congress is out of session for the year is the assault weapons ban, which has passed the House um, and is something two-thirds of Americans support, right? Um, assault weapons in particular, um, when they're used in a shooting, people are shot as many as six times or more. And we have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to really be able to pass this life-saving legislation for the first time in 30 years. So that's something really historic and something that, you know, we're trying to work on um, to really get these weapons of war off the street. Many of our listeners may not be aware of this, but uh, this horrifying statistic has come out as of last year that gun violence is now the leading cause of death for young people across the United States for the second year in a row. And this, of course, speaks to the urgency of the work that you over at uh, March for Our Lives are doing now. What's the importance of this really sobering statistic that gun violence is the leading cause of death for young people. So something that I use to put things in perspective for folks, especially for me when I was really young and growing up, seeing a lot of politicians and elected officials on TV, a lot of the things that they supported or, you know, voted on or their values were rooted in was like, this is a fight for a better America. This is a fight for the future, right? This concept of like, we're, we're doing things for future generations. Um, and what I tell people is like, what are you doing for future generations if we don't even have the opportunity to have a future at this point? Um, it is, I, th I believe it was um, automobile or auto accidents that used to be the leading cause of death until two years ago, like you mentioned, and now firearms is the leading cause of death for children. And we also know that this disproportionately impacts black and brown children as well in particular. And so I think that there is a huge sense of urgency around this particular issue, and this is really what's 
killing um, our future generation, right, the future of our country. And the fact that politicians are not taking that seriously, um, you know, is really frustrating for young people. And what we are really looking for now going into next year, going into 2024 even, is People who are bold on this issue, people who do want to publicly say, yeah, let's ban assault weapons. Let's raise the age to purchasing a gun to 21. Let's have universal background checks, right? We're looking for that. We're looking for leaders who are bold on this issue. Zenit, I I wanted to get your response to the growing ties between people who advocate for guns and more guns and lots of guns and less restrictions to buy a gun. We have that sentiment across the United States. But it seems there's a growing link between this idea of more guns is is better for the country and this right-wing white supremacist ideology that worships the Second Amendment. This is something that's very real, and it it really permeates, I know, the obstacles that you work against in your day-to-day job at March for Our Lives. What are some of the concerns you have about where this pro-gun sentiment comes from and the opposition, of course— to any kind of gun regulation. Yeah, well, where do we begin on that? You know, I think there's a few things there to unpack. I think the first thing is, to your point, um, our country has a culture of gun glorification, right? And I'm not sure if this is a... um, well-aware fact, but um, the history of the Second Amendment actually is very much rooted in racism, right? Part of the Second Amendment that people tend to forget is the purpose of owning a gun was just in case there was a slave revolt, right? And so there's that piece and that culture. And I think the um, white supremacy, you know, we've seen this post 9-11. We saw this in the 1980s, you know, for example, against the AAPI community, against Muslims, and now in 2020 after the pandemic, again, the AAPI community, right? Um, folks are folks are feeling scared, right? And the default response is, if I buy a gun, it might make me safer, um, which actually is not necessarily the case. But because of the way white supremacy is rooted in our culture, um, sometimes that's what a lot of people end up defaulting to. And the thing is, research has actually shown that people don't feel safe with more guns. And so what we're seeing when we compare a lot of the things that, you know, the other side, quote unquote, talks about and then look at what's rooted in research, it's completely different. And then also this connection to, you know, I really think it's about being a responsible gun owner and raising the standards of gun ownership. And so what does that look like, right? Um, If you need a driver's license at 16, right, to drive a car, if you're going to have a potentially like deadly weapon of war, you should probably have some sort of license or at the very least a background check. And the fact, again, that this is not a standard in our country um, is contributing so much to, you know, the statistic that you just read out earlier that firearms is now the leading cause of death for young people. That was Zenit Yahya, director of policy with the group March for Our Lives. Learn more about the group's ongoing campaign to end gun violence by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed 
by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WERU in Blue Hill, Maine, WDRT in Viroqua, Wisconsin, Progressive Voices Network and TuneIn Nationwide, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. Scott Harris.